Great, great. You uh, heard you stop by last night. Yeah, I had a cake. Yeah, I heard. Great. That's great. That's great. One second. Let me just grab my chumash. Thought I had one here. One second. Hey. Hi, how are you? Doing pretty well. How about you? I heard you were baking last night. Yeah, I made a cake. <laughs> what kind? Chocolate, it was like eggless. So it was like, I mean, I think it turned out good because I tried a piece. But I was like a little bit worried because, you know, without eggs, it's a little bit different. Where did you get the recipe from? Was it in that binder cookbook? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the family cookbook. Yeah. It, it works. I've done that cake. It's good. I, I, I it was very chocolatey. I liked it. Okay. I am going to turn off my video because I have to clean my kitchen while I'm doing Okay. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. Hey, sorry about that. I had a homage down here. Okay, court. So we have a double Parsha, actually a triple Parsha. We have, it's by Yaakel Pekude. It's the last two Torah portions in the book of Exodus, the book of Shemos. And it is Parshas HaChodesh which is the last of the four special um, uh, Torah readings that we read uh, for Maftir uh, at the end of the Torah. So we had way too much to talk about, but uh, as always, there's some things that uh, stuck out. Now, I can't remember 
if I started doing this partial shear last year already at this time. So I uh, hope I won't repeat. Okay, here it goes. So the partial starts out, partial is like Yakel, with, for the, at this point, it's, I think, the fifth or sixth time, the Torah tells us about Shabbos. I think the Torah tells us about Shabbos perhaps in 30 different places. And each time there's another nuance. So here is actually, um, for those, you know, there's a common discussion that people have is, you know, um, about the veracity of the oral law. The oral tradition, the Talmud, the Mishnah, all the details. And often when that's discussed, uh, there's really a lack of awareness of what, in fact, is in there. And one of the uh, talking points is often the third verse in this week's Parsha. says the famous thing we say in Kiddush, Sheishes yamim tasa six days a week you should do your work. On the seventh day will be for you a holy day, a very, a, a very uh, a day to do a lot of rest. And then it says one detail, and this is the only detail about what there is to do and not do on Shabbos in the Torah. Now, mind you, when I was 22, I was in, no, 23, I was in Baltimore uh, trying to figure out what I should, I was starting out my uh, studying of Jewish law. And I went to my uh, main teacher in Jewish law, Rabbi Berger, and I asked him, you know, there's so much Jewish law to study. It's, you know, it's like, it's, it's like lawyers. You have bankruptcy lawyers and estate lawyers. And uh, I said, you know, what should I study? And he said, you know, unless you're, you have a job that you're aiming for that would need you to have a certain expertise, a certain qualification, he told me to spend the next 20 years learning the details of Shabbos. He said, because that's really makes the most sense. It comes up every single week. Everyone's doing it. Um, and uh, that. And he said, as a, as a rabbi, and now he's a world-renowned rabbi, the vast majority of his questions are about Shabbos. But it's interesting, though, because even if they're not the most observant person, not the most knowledgeable person, you know that there's much more to Shabbos than the following line. What does the line say? And lo sevaru eish bechol moshvosechem biyom hashabbos. Do not, now literally translate it, and even even the literal part makes is is not what we do. It says, "Do not have a fire kindling in your houses on Shabbos." Now the Sadducees and the Tzedukim and the, the time of the Second Temple, people think this is an, a new discussion. You know what what's 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 legit, what's not legit. Even in the time of the Second Temple, there already was a discussion amongst, uh, not a discussion, there was a movement which said you only should be literist. Whatever it says in the Torah, that's what you do, which looks nothing like any religion there is in the world. And this was one of the verses. Actually, the source for eating chalant, vegetarian or not, is this verse because it says when you read it literally it says don't have fire burning in your house you know what that means 
means no lights, no ovens, no air conditioners, no heaters. Nothing can be on, even if you set it in motion before Shabbos, and even if it's going to be on the whole Shabbos. It's not even going to be a timer. It's just going to be on. You flip that switch before Shabbos, they did not have... Now, what happened was, this was a big problem. Because if you can imagine, if we're going to only be absolute literalists, in fact, I always... This is my favorite Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, trivia challenge. If you can find any mitzvah in the Torah, the 613, that you could actually figure out how to do it just from reading the 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 um the written the written the written version the written version the written part you know people you know laws of kosher are, are so it doesn't talk about it it, it, it very generally the, so what happened was towards the end of the second temple it was a big movement to take the torah literally now the real reason why people like to take the torah literally most of the time is because if you take it literally, there's not very uh, much you have to do. Because all the Torah says about Shabbos and the Torah, it says, watch it, guard it, remember it. So it's a pretty simple thing. So that was the impetus for taking the Torah in a literal sense because it takes away responsibilities. So in this case, what they did was they said, you know what? No fires in people's houses. And they didn't have chalent. And the, at the time, the leadership wanted to weed out this movement. And they made a, a custom. And they said, everyone needs or, and is encouraged to have hot food at their Shabbos lunch. And the way they would thought this would be helpful is they would have people canvas the houses and see if there was any hot food. If there wasn't any hot food, then you knew this person was likely part of that movement who were saying, well, you can't have a fire going. And this is the only detail of Shabbos that's spelled out. And even this detail is not clear. And this is one of the major ideas that we see that that uh, there must have been, and there is a, a uh, tremendous amount of tradition that was handed down in the, to the Jews at Mount Sinai. Now the Shla, famous Shla, Shnei Luchos Abris, he brings down a more uh, esoteric understanding of this verse. Because it is a little bit odd. If there's so many details, it's like, why bother telling us one vague one? You have 20 years of studying. So the Shloss says it's actually not instructing you about the don'ts of Shabbos in the law sense. He says, it's refer when it says don't have a fire in your house, it's referring to the fire of anger. He's saying there's a special commandment. We never should let our anger get to us. Obviously, we might have feelings of anger. It's up to us what to do with that anger. But the Torah is telling us, says the Shla, there's a special um, uh, care we have to take to not get angry on Shabbos. I saw different uh, explanations of that. One is simply just the holy day. You don't want to waste it with being angry. Another one is, is that Reality is people do spend a lot of time together. And even when people love each other and parents love children and people like their friends and family, but, you know, people do get on each other's nerves sometimes. And, uh, you know, you, you want the good times to roll, not the good times to falter. 
So that, that's what Shlosh says. The Torah is telling you, make sure that your house, that's why it says, do not have a fire burning in your Moshmosechem. Moshmosechem is your domiciles, the place that you live. It really could have just said, well, it sounds from there, well, I, I can make a fire on the street, I can't make it in my house. So that's why the Shlosh says, it's referring specifically where people live to uh, not have the fire of anger. Rabbi Yel Lapian, he, he uh, lived, he was, uh, he passed away, well, maybe in the 70s. He was a tremendous uh, uh, character development uh, author and scholar in, um, in England. His daughter, or granddaughter, I was very close with, actually. And he had a yeshiva. And his yeshiva, it had, like all schools and programs, it had a list of rules and regulations. And in the uh, inauguration every year, the orientation of the yeshiva every year, one of the rules was that it was, it was spoken out that on Friday afternoons, one no one in our yeshiva is to speak angrily. And that's because of this. And Friday afternoon, everyone knows, there's a challenging time, there's a rush, there's a pressure. And there's a special Yetzirah. The, all the Bali Muster, all the character development authors speak about the the how the Yetzirah knows how you can kill a Shabbos with a, a, a uptight. Uh, and it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. But as we know, whenever something is really important, that's when the Yetzirah really tries to get you. So you know if, if, it's, if it's hard. Um, there's a famous story, a famous Gemara in Shabbos. Most of us uh, no part of the story, but many of us don't realize the story actually happened right before Shabbos. In Muskamar and Shabbos on on Daflamin Alf and Alf, page 31a. So there was a bet between two uh, obviously not high level people, and they wanted to see if this Hillel, Hillel was known for his patience, no one could get Hill, no one could touch Hillel, and they made a bet with each other. They said, if if one guy says, if I don't, if I, if I get Hillel angry, you have to give me 400, 400 rules. So he goes, long story short, he goes over to Hillel right before Shabbos. And the Gemara says that he was, he was bathing. And this guy yells out from the street, me Khan Hillel, is there anyone Hillel here? Now Hillel, mind you, was the leader of the Jewish people. The, the top gun. And he calls out, is there a guy, Hillel, here? So he was trying to, like, kind of frazzle him a little bit. You know, not very respectful. And then he says, you know, I have a really, really important question. Hillel puts his puts his uh, robe on, and he comes out, and he says, he says, please, my son, ask me. He talks such a pleasant way. He says, he asks him, why do Babylonians have round heads? And he tells him, because... Uh, where um, the uh, the um, the uh, midwives aren't very good at their job, and it ends up hurting the heads of uh, the Babylonians. And he let, lets them go back in. Ten minutes later, he says, "Is Hillel here? I have a question." And he asks him some other question. He asks, "Why do certain think people in India? Why do their eyes? Why are they very small?" And he tells them because of the sand. And then he calls them back a third time. And he says, why do African people in Africa have such wide feet? And he explains because they walk around without shoes and there's lots of thorns. 
And finally, he comes back a fourth time. And he says to Hillel, I have so many questions to ask, but I'm nervous to ask you them because maybe you're going to get angry. And the Marsha says that that it was a tactic because he probably was getting pretty proud of himself. I mean, good proud that he was actually having lots of patience. And, it's not, and, 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 and it sounded like he wasn't really, he was like second guessing, you know, I'm nervous, you might get angry. But Hillel says, I have all day. And then the person says, there should be no more people like you in Israel because I just lost 400 bucks because I could not get you angry. And the Gemara says, from there, we see a person should be a humble, patient person. And uh, we all know that the people we have the most respect for are people who, are, who don't get angry. And we also know how we shouldn't do this, but how we can lose respect for someone so fast uh, when we see them get angry. And obviously, it's our job, because we all get angry sometimes. We all get flustered. It's our job when we see people that happens to say, you know, what, what would I want people to say about me if they saw me get flustered? And we'd want them to say, yeah, you know, the pie has had a rough day. It's getting too much. But as far as we're concerned, our job is to work on not getting angry. Moving on, so most of these of these of these two parshios talk about it's based it's pretty much a repetition. Uh, two weeks ago and three weeks ago, the Torah portion was about the building. We had, we had the building of, of of the tabernacle and all the clothing and all the objects and and um, it basically these two portions are are almost a mirror repetition of those. And everyone asks, the Torah is so careful. We just saw with Shabbos. All of Shabbos is deduced from innuendos and inferences. And, and here you have the basically the exact same information, almost word for word, hundreds of verses. So everyone asked this question, but I saw the, the Reb Palm, who always found, um, you know, character development ideas in the Parsha, and that's what he spoke about. He said, we see from here, if you notice, what's the, basically only difference between these portions. The, the two previous portions were all in the tense of God telling Moshe and Moshe telling the Jewish people, this is what you should do. This week's Parsha, it just takes it a little different, and it says, this is what they did. Then it said, you should do this, and this is what they did. This is what they should do, this is what they did. Says Rabham, the Torah needs to make such a big deal about this concept. Because most, all of us, we certainly myself, we're big talkers, we're dreamers, we like to talk, and we very often don't do what we talk about doing, think about doing, even even in, in, a, in a sincere way. And Rapam says that in, in, in Judaism and certainly in anything in life, um, we, we gotta we gotta be ambitious, we gotta talk, we gotta dream. But most of Judaism is a religion of acts. It's become popular today that it's not a religion of acts. It's you know how you feel, how you think, which Judaism is tremendously into thoughts and feelings. But bottom line, it's a really, it's a really, it's a it's a way of life. It's a relationship with God and the Jewish people and ourselves 
that's one of activity. And and a lot of times people say, come on, that's a little too, that's not very meaningful. It's not very, um, doesn't get me excited. And anyone who could say that, including myself, we, we, we forget that we don't really agree with that. Because think about any relationship, whether it's a professional relationship, a familiar relationship, whatever it might be, spousal, there's no relationship that is only thoughts and feelings. You don't keep a job by thinking and feeling. You don't stay in any relationship, whether it's a friend or a family, intense or not intense, if there's never any action, then platitudes mean nothing. The person can apologize from today to tomorrow, or they could say, I love you from today to tomorrow. But if there's no action, not everyone has a different balance. Some people are good, more into talking. You know, there's the five languages of love. People are more into action. They want the words. But there's no, there's no language of love, no language of real, of, of, of reality. It does not include a lot of activity. And that is what I, probably the most salient feature of Judaism is that there's activities. There's, there, there's, there's concrete things to do. So that's what uh, the palm brings out from this tremendous repetition. And from the fact that there's so many verses, it shows you how it's something we have to, it's important for us to, um, to, to keep in mind. It's interesting, the, t- the verse talks about how they finished making the temple, chapter 40, verse 2. It talks about the, the timeline. You see, they started this whole process, this whole campaign, right after Yom Kippur, because there was the whole episode after Mount Sinai with the, with the, with the golden calf, and that Yom Kippur became Yom Kippur because that was the day that God forgave the Jewish people. So that's why it's the Day of Atonement for all time, at least till uh, in this life cycle. And so right away, the tabernacle was uh, with the campaign started. And miraculously, this tremendously complicated um, project and projects took only three months they were done in uh, Teves shortly after Hanukkah. And, excuse me, um, it should have taken six months because the reality is we know, right, the actual, the inauguration of the tabernacle was right now. It was in the month of Nisan, which was the month when Yitzhak was born. And Yitzhak is, he represents divine service. So it makes sense to have the, uh, the most uh, most opportune time to start the tabernacle, which is which is the focal point of our service, was when Yitzhak was born. He brought those energies into this world. Um, interesting uh, topic to, to discuss. But the but the um, who asked this? The Bryosef. The Bryosef asks. One second. If it took a miracle to get it done in three months. And why we wait another three months? It, why wouldn't God let them take its natural course for six months and let it be done? What was the point of doing this massive miracle, 
have everything ready to be done by Teves, Hanukkah time, and then make everyone wait for the inauguration for a whole three months. What was the point of that? It's like a tease. What's the point, right? It's like if someone's not in a rush, you know, you, it's one thing if you speed and you get a ticket because you're in a rush. Let's say you're not in a rush. Like, what are you speeding for? Just going to get a ticket, you know, slow down. So the Ber Yosef says a really, really in, uh, profound idea. We've mentioned this before, that the purpose of the tabernacle, it really, really the, the tabernacle w- would, would have been unnecessary if the Jewish people did not have the sin of the golden calf. We discussed that earlier. But bottom line, everyone agrees that the tabernacle is here. It's a response to the golden calf. So let's think about the golden calf. What was, would you, what if you think about it, what would be the biggest mistake that they made? Right? You know the basic mistake. Moshe says, I'll be back in 40 days and 40 nights. It, it, they think it's over. Moshe is a minute late, and they pretty much go nuts. Moshe was going to come back pretty soon. So the Beriose points out the biggest mistake they made was haste. Haste makes waste, a lack of patience and impulsivity, impulsivity and, um, and, 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 and really, in a certain sense, being pompous to think that you, you understand and it doesn't make sense to me, so we're just going to do this. They didn't, they didn't ask the elders. They didn't even consult Aaron. Aaron tried to do crowd control. It was just lack of patience, being impulsive, not being humble. So what Hashem wanted to make sure the Jewish people got the message was precisely in the building of the temple, he made things be ready three months early to see and to help the Jewish people inculcate in themselves this idea of, look, are they patient? Doesn't make any sense. Why are we, why are we ready three months early? What's the point? It was, to develop, it was a proving ground for the whole purpose of the temple. And we know how important being patient is. Aaron and his sons, Moshe in, in, inaugurates them in the six Torah portion. He takes a special anointing oil, and Hashem tells him to anoint his brother Aaron, put the special oil on his head. And then he says, I want you to anoint Aaron's sons the same way you anointed their father. And all the commentators jump on this. I believe uh, most famously the Meshachachma, or Mary Simcha Dvensk, only lived about 100 years ago. And he um, explains the following. The Medrash says, when the famous episode of the burning bush... So Moshe kind of saw all, all of world history at that point. There's a lot of fascinating Midrashim over there. And at that point, Moshe kind of says to God, you know, look, I see you want me to be the, really the leader of Jewish people of all time. You know, what's going to be with my kids? You know, usually, you know, you have a leader. You know, the natural thing is that the children uh, take, take, take over. Or they're certainly very prominent, 
pretty classic these days, certainly in Washington. We know that whoever goes going to go in, they're going to bring their family in. Pretty typical today. It, it became atypical, but uh, certainly um, today it's certainly back being uh, in style. And Shem told Moshe, no, your kids are... They are they are. They have their potential. Your kids are not going to be are not going to be leaders of the Jewish people. And as humble as Moshe was, that's not that's not, that's hard. So when Moshe when Hashem asked Moshe to anoint Aaron, his brother, he was like, "Great, you know, my brother, we've gone through everything together. I'm so happy that my brother also has a great important position." But then he was asked to anoint his nephews. Now, as amazing as Moshe was, here he was, I'm sure he wanted his kids to be um, leaders, but that wasn't meant to be. So Hashem was telling Moshe on his level, I'm sure it wasn't like ours, that, you know, it's normal to, 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 to have feelings like that. I'm telling you, Moshe, I understand that the tendency, your natural response would be to be a little bit little bit misgiving about it, but that's your job. Your job is to be happy for them. And, and, uh, and uh, that would, that's part of our job. That's part of the reason why God puts us in situations when, where we're jealous or it's hard to be happy for someone else. And that is a sign called in Yiddish, forgetting. You're happy for someone else. There's a famous parable, the Sefer Mitzvah Sakatan. He says, you know, there was once uh, a king, and he had two constituents. One was Mr. Covet. If he saw you with something, he wanted that also. He didn't even mind if you had it. If you added it, he wanted to. That was Mr. Covet. Then you have Mr. Jealousy. Mr. Jealousy, or Mrs. Jealousy, Ms. Jealousy. Um, he, um, di- he didn't really even care if he had it. He didn't want you to have it. If he saw you had something, he just didn't want you to have it. So the king says to these two people, Mr. Coppin and Mr. Jealous, says, you know, I'll make you a deal. One of you guys can make a request, and I will grant you in full whatever request you like. But whoever doesn't make that request, the other person will get double of what you asked. Now, this is a very hard proposal for people who are in the jealousy and covet business. Right? Because Mr. Covet says, hmm, I'm not going to be happy because I want what he has. But this is an opportunity. So I want to ask for a million dollars, but then he's going to have two million. I'm not going to be happy with my million. But I got to get the ball rolling. Well, Mr. Jealousy had it even worse. Because he doesn't want the other guy to have anything, even if he does get the two million. And the king sees them hemming and hawing and arguing who should go first, who should go last. Finally, Mr. Jealousy, who was more passionate because people who are jealous are going to be more into their jealousy. As bad as coveting in, jealousy is worse. He convinces his comrade. He says, you go first. 
you go first. And the comrade says, no, 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 no. You go first. So finally, the jealousy guy says, you know what? I'm getting this. I can't stand this. We got to end this episode. And he says to the king, I want you to gouge out one of my eyes. Because what's going to happen if one of his eyes gets gouged out? His friend's going to get both eyes gouged out. Because that was the deal. It's double. Because the jealousy guy says, I'd rather lose than the other guy have something. And this, the parable is saved from, as the cotton says, who loses the most when we are jealous? Us. So jealousy, it doesn't hurt the other person. It hurts us. And that's the lesson from the Sefer Mitzvah Zakhan. Let's wind down over here. Already 8 o'clock. Okay, this is a really nice idea. So this was the most successful fundraising campaign of all time, right? They had volunteers. They had donations. They had endless workers and endless materials and it was so much and all the people involved they said to Moshe we got to hold off there's too many volunteers too much money coming in first time in history last time in history and Moshe the obvious response at that point would, would be to put out a, 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 a post make a Facebook post made a blast everybody uh, we don't need anything more but Moshe realized if people are in the middle of doing work, working hard on a curtain, working hard on an on, on a article, something, then they would feel useless. They would feel not appreciated because they already put all this work in and they're being told we don't need it. Instead, Moshe said, no one start anything new. Whatever you're doing, that you finish. No, no more new things. And that way, anyone who already was in the middle of activity felt very uh, useful. And that we learned from Moshe. This famous story, I've heard it on kids, on kids' tapes, but the famous rabbi from pre-World War II Europe, Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter, famous head of a yeshiva in a city called Grodna. And one time he was sitting with a student, and uh, someone knocked on the door, come in, and says, um, you know, Rebbe, so-and-so's engaged. And Rabbi Specter goes, wow, thank you so much for telling me. That's amazing. Next guy comes in, Rabbi, you never, you never believe who's engaged. And this goes on for an hour. Every two minutes. Another student comes in thinking they're the bearer of this amazing news. And this other student sat there for the hour seeing his holy teacher making each person feel like they were the, the, the bearer of this amazing news. And that's what we have to do. A lot of times, you know, you don't need someone's help or you, you didn't need it so much. And someone's really uh, excited or they worked really hard or do something and you didn't really need it or you didn't even want it. Maybe you actually don't want it. Um, so the proper, it's not considered lying. It's not considered being disingenuous to allow the person the satisfaction. Um, and you see that Moshe did that.
Okay. Let's see. Let's pick two more. Okay. Yeah, this is a nice one. I, I, it's, I, this one is, uh, it resonates with me a lot. So, where does it say it? It says, in the Parsha, famous line. It says, six days you should do work, on the seventh day is holy. So the Yismach Yisrael, one of the Hasidish Rebbe's, he has a something they call Hasidish Atira. It's kind of a little bit, you know, esoteric, a little bit out of context, but it's a little bit of a pun, but it has a real truism to it. He says, this is how you should read this verse. A person who needs to work for six days person who has to work for a living. They have a career. They have a job. And they can't spend the time they'd like to, you know, on their soul or doing certain meaningful activities, studying or spending time with family and doing certain mitzvot or praying properly. They're doing work the whole week. And what do they do on the seventh day on Shabbos when they do have the time they make it holy, then Shabbat Shabbat Son Hashem. Then that shows that everything you do all the time is really, you get credit that the, all the time you were doing what you really want to do. If you show Hashem, and this works in relationships also, by the way, if you show Hashem that, look, I'm a busy guy, I'm a busy gal, but when I have the time, look what I do. Look what I do when I have the time. That says who a person is. What do they do when they're downtime? And that God says, you know what? I made you a human being. You got it. You have your things you got to do during the week. But I see how you use the time productively when you have the time. I'm going to look at it that all the time that's what you're doing. And on the contrary, if when person has the downtime, says the Yismach Yisrael, and they don't use it productively, they show Hashem, you know what? God says, you know, you know, really there's a lot of important things that have to happen every day. Now I understand if you got to work, you got to make a living, you got to whatever you got to do. But that's not the reason why you're not doing those good things during the week. Because I see when you have your downtime, I see what happens. So then it, it works against you. Then that time, which quote-unquote was excusable, becomes inexcusable. And this is something which works relationship with God. And it's certainly, I remember when I was, I don't know all that was, maybe I was 25, first starting to get really involved in the community. And I'm like a little bit of a runner. I don't know, those of you who know me a little bit, on a, in, in podcast world or Zoom world, Facebook world, wherever you are. Um... You know, I'm, 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 I'm involved in a lot of things. You know, I don't like to just uh, take it easy. That's my personality. And I asked uh, a mentor of mine, I said, how is that going to work? You know, if, I'm, if I get really involved in the community, I'm not going to have as much time as some of my friends to spend with their family and this and that. And, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's inappropriate. And he said, obviously, look, there's a certain critical mass, a certain critical amount of time that you just got to spend with your family and, and take care of yourself. But, you know, outside of that critical mass, it really depends on the 
on every relationship and how you utilize it. If if your kids and your can they feel that they're priority number one, right? Because they see when you're not busy what you do, then then the, you can actually sometimes even even be more productive if you're a busy person. Because your kids might say, "Wow, I know Dad's really busy, but he he took me for ten minutes to 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 Seven Eleven, or I had a catch with you for ten minutes, or you know." Shot around some hoops, whatever it might be. Now, obviously, to an extreme, it doesn't work because, as we said before, you got to have actions, you know. But if someone, let's say, spends two hours every night as opposed to five hours every night, you really could accomplish a lot in those in that smaller but significant amount of um, of time. And, and this applies to a lot of things. Sometimes in our in our lives, we we have to compromise on our standards. And it's the appropriate thing in some situations. You know, you're in a situation and it's, you know, it's, it's something that the, the proper thing sometimes to do is to lower your standard. So I asked a very big guy once, I was at a conference, and he was talking about someone like myself who interacts with people of all different uh, levels of Judaism. And, 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 and um, I said, sometimes, you know, I may make a choice, which would which be a choice, which I think is the right choice for that situation. But I want my children to understand that they're, you know, th this was a one-time thing. And I told this rabbi that, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, kids can see if you say, you know, this was a one-time thing. But let's say they see that it's not a one-time thing. They see it's happening actually more often than it's not. So Rabbi Gershenfeld, Rabbi Gershenfeld, Shlita, and Eretz he says that it actually can be extremely powerful. If, if someone sees, even if it's not most of the time, but that when you can, you do things in a, in a more intense way, it actually makes a profound impact. I can tell you, for example, on my trips to Israel, they're so busy. But I try, whenever I do have some time, to pull out a book and study. And actually, I found that on my last trip, it actually made a big impact on some students. Because they don't know that usually I spend a lot more time studying. And they would see me on the bus here and there, cashing 10 minutes here. At the end of the day, you know, sitting on a couch in the hotel lobby to study some Talmud. They're like, Rabbi, Wow, that's incredible. And I'm thinking to myself, I only studied five minutes today. I usually study hours. And it's, it, it says something in your relationships with God, with yourself, and with other people that uh, what you do when you, when you have the choice says a lot about who you are. Let's uh, say one last idea and then do a quick review. What's our last one going to be? Um, okay, I, li I like this one. We're still in the month of Adar. Now, I love the month of Adar because the month of Adar, you got to be happy. It's a mitzvah to be happy. What kind of religion is that? It's a mitzvah to be happy. Incredible, right? So there's an interesting law in this week's Parsha that the Kohanim always had to look a like GQ. They always had to be a million dollars. They actually they had to get haircuts at certain intervals. If their clothing was worn out, they were not allowed to wear it. And the Chinuch, the Zebra Chinuch, when describing the rationale for these commandments, 
it says because when people walked into the base of Mikdash, the base of Mikdash, the temple needed to be a place of utter joy. We see throughout the Talmud, the Talmud, Talmud talks about Yerushalayim as a place of joy. There's no burials in Yerushalayim. In fact, the Talmud says that if a person, there were no accounting firms in Yerushalayim. Because as, as necessary as accounting firms are, often accountants uh, are the bearers of very stressful information. So there actually was a house right outside Yerushalayim where you were supposed to go to do your monetary calculations. If a person is doesn't have a haircut and his clothes aren't taken care of properly, in Judaism that's often synonymous with um, uh, uh, mourning. It's a lack. There's a lack of of of, of joy and and and, pr and, pr and pride there, and and that was something that when a person goes, yes, there's a time to be sad, but not in the base of Mikdash. We know on Shabbos in general, you know, Shabbos is not a time to be sad, even if you feel sad. Not on Shabbos. Um, there's a famous famous thing, the famous story of Moshe Feinstein. Blessed memory, died in the mid-80s. He was asked once, why is it that so many of the immigrants from Europe were very, very uh, sincere Jews, very into their Judaism, and the generation after them didn't practice in their ways? It was, like, weird. It wasn't like, you know, you had these people, you know, fully observant, and then their kids weren't. So the famous uh, say, say, saying that Reverend Moshe Feinstein said it was because there are many parents, and my grandparents didn't do this, at least uh, I know about one of them. Um, they said, is a schwer They would come home on Friday night and they lost their job, or it was hard to leave their job, but they left their job. They kept Shabbos and they would sit down at the Shabbos table and they'd make Kiddush. And they would make the hamotzi, and instead of singing and having alchayim or, or schmoozing and having Torah, they would say, "Oh, it's hard being a Jew. Not, it's not going to be get your kids to want to want to keep doing that." And that's what the temple and Jerusalem represented. And that's you know for ourselves, we influence ourselves the most. We got to be able to. It's not easy. Not easy uh, to to be happy people. Uh, to exude happiness for ourselves, the people around us, people closest to us. And when we do that, um, you want to do it. You want to do it. And, I, and this is something I, I always say on my birthright trips, that uh, if I'm missing Israel, uh, that if, if, if you're, you're finding your Judaism, that it's not meaningful, it's not practical, and it's not enjoyable, that's not Judaism. It's something else. Don't say Judaism is not practical, meaningful, and enjoyable because it is. So maybe what you're doing, maybe you're misinformed. Uh, and um, that's uh, there's no question. When I'm doing Judaism properly, I'm, I would say almost without fail, I'm happy. When I'm not as happy, it's usually there's something I'm not doing is right. doesn't mean to get depressed. doesn't mean to get neurotic. Quick review. So we learned from the Shla that on Shabbos, Got to make sure we don't get angry. We also learned that there's a lot of details on Shabbos, and that's in the oral tradition. 
We learned from Reb Pam that there's so much repetition because it's important to bring home the point that we talk, we talk, we talk, we dream, but we got to do. We learned from the Ismach Yisrael that it's, we learn so much about ourselves and certainly reflect it to other people what we do in our downtime. We learned from Moshe Feinstein how a person has to exude happiness when they do their important things. We learned about the importance of patience, even when we don't understand things. We learned from the Meshachachma on the Sefer HaMitzvos that the ones who lose the most are those who are jealous. And lastly, we said that very important to be sensitive to other people's feelings if they think they're doing something good and it's not going to hurt you to make them continue to feel good, make them feel good again, because that's, that's what you would want. So a beautiful Shabbos. Uh, I think next week we still will do this. The week after that, I'm not quite sure. It's going to be the night. No, we will not. Uh, as far as maybe do it a different night, but um, uh, there, uh, there's the, the Thursday night, two weeks from now, will be the checking of the chametz. But next Wednesday night is Steve Eisenberg. He's a really good speaker. Have a great Shabbos.